right. Um, Ezekiel, chapter 22, verse 30. In Ezekiel 22 and verse 30, the Spirit of the Lord is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, and he's speaking not only to Israel, but down through down through history, he's speaking to us, and he's speaking to us today. He's speaking to us about joining God's quest. I don't know how many of you have ever thought of God being on a quest, on a search, but amazingly, the Bible talks about God questing, God searching, looking for something. And so I want to touch on some of those things in the scriptures that the Bible says God's looking for. This verse brings it out. We started this... Um, Two weeks ago, and um, so we're going to continue it today. I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. Just let that statement sink in for a moment. Think about today. God said to Israel back in the day of Ezekiel, and he's saying to us today, I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one, the Bible says, sadly. Um, I looked for someone to stand in the gap. Now, <clears throat> the point of this series, just kind of give us a starting focus, this series about God's quest, the point is that Jesus is looking for people who will be more interested in what he's interested in than what he can do for them. Not to diminish or minimize the blessings of God, the things that we can go to him for, and that he's more than willing to bless and meet our needs with. But God has always looked for people who realize that God has a search and God has an interest. And they were more interested in what he was interested in. You know, you can't really know what God wants for your life without knowing what he wants for himself first. And so last week, or the last time we were on this message, we shared about the lost. The Lord is searching for the lost. He has come into the world seeking for lost souls. That's preeminent in what God is looking for. And so that was our first message. So the point of that message was when you join Jesus as a follower of Christ, when you join him, you are joining automatically his search for souls. And if you truly follow Jesus, you will become a fisher of men. That's where his impact and influence on your life is going to end up. It is going to make you interested in what he's interested in. This morning, I want to now move on and talk about the gap. God said, I'm looking for people that I can put in the gap. In Isaiah 59, 14 through 16, there's another famous verse that talks about the gap and God's desire to find intercessors in the gap. And it says, again, this could be, of course, uh, uh, taken from the headlines of any editorial today in our world. Justice is driven back. Godliness stands far off. Indeed, honesty stumbles in the city square, and morality is not even able to enter. Honesty has disappeared. The one who tries to avoid evil is robbed. 
The Lord watches and is displeased, appalled and disgusted, for there is no justice. He sees there is no advocate or someone to stand in the gap. He is shocked that no one intervenes. So he takes matters into his own hands. His desire, note the word desire, for justice drives him on. So there's three real quick points to pull out of this. A gap exists in the earth. A gap between God's righteousness and the rotting influence of evil upon the world's cultures. And when the gap is left empty and there's nobody standing, intervening in the gap, then evil prevails, innocence suffers, and God's judgment draws near. The second point we pull out of this verse is that God is actually looking for people to stand in that gap. Do you hear that cry, I want people who are willing to put themselves between the rotting influence of the culture and my desire to save. I need to see some people with desire filling that void. So God's looking for people, and he specifically says not only to stand in the gap and resist evil, but to rebuild righteousness. This is always the heart of God. There's never a time when God is not searching for people who will resist evil, rebuild righteousness. And the third point in that verse was that it's apparent that at that time there was no one to stand in the gap because, frankly, it was humanly impossible for sinful people to advocate on behalf of sinful people and to have God's heart. So God himself came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, steps into the gap, and he effectively inserts the kingdom of God into that gap. The Bible says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. He establishes his kingdom in the earth and is specifically situated in the gap between God's desire for righteousness to save, to deliver, and the condition of a sinful world. And there the kingdom of God now exists in that place of intercession so that everyone who comes to him can enter that place in the gap, enter the kingdom of God where the power of sin can be broken and authority of righteousness can be established. So here we are today, 2,000 years since Jesus brought the kingdom of God into the earth, and evil still exists, obviously, very apparent. And uh, thank God that he's, we've escaped out of the grip, that death grip of sin and of evil. But evil still exists. It exists in the world. And so also does God's search for people who will stand in the gap. Jesus went into the gap, established the kingdom, but he's still looking for people, you and I, to go stand in that gap. That exists today, but the kingdom of God is God's permanent installation of grace and righteousness in the earth. And everyone who is born again in the kingdom of God is called and qualified to stand in the gap. 1 Peter 2.9 talks about it brilliantly and puts it like this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people 
for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So into the light of the kingdom of God. When we get saved, we are to still be in the earth, still be touching sin and the need of a broken humanity, but we stand in a new place in the kingdom as a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, a priesthood, essentially, is somebody God appoints to stand in the gap with desire for his quest to be fulfilled. Let me just stress that again, because we're talking about the fact that God has a quest. I'm looking for people who will stand in the gap, run to the sound of the guns, put yourself between the danger and the victory, and have God's quest in your heart. That is essentially what a priest is supposed to have. They plead for God's mercy just as our Savior did on Calvary's cross as he was dying for the sinners that were crucifying him. And so the priest looks beyond the abominable behaviors of the people around them in order to plead in behalf of God's love and mercy. And for a priest to be effective, God's desire, his questing drive, what drives him, his desire in his search, must be the fuel in that priest's heart. The trouble throughout history has been that God has always had priests, but their heart goes cold. They run out of fuel. They don't refill it. God's desire isn't in their heart. When their heart goes cold, there's no longer an active representative. God wants desire. It's the thing he's looking for more than anything. Not complaint uh, necessarily, uh, or editorializing. God knows exactly what's going on. But those who will look through and beyond the conditions of those around them and see the value of Jesus' love for them and intercede. Lord, we bring these people, we bring this family, this community, this nation before you. Now, we're referred to in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 9, that I share with you as a royal priesthood. What that means is the new birth for every Christian who is born again, the new birth makes you automatically an heir of Jesus, King Jesus' priestly ministry. And then he, because you're his possession, in the Old Testament, the Bible said, the priests belonged to me. They were God's personal possession. And so the Lord then, by inheritance, when you're born again, you inherit Jesus' calling as God's eternal priest. And then he gifts you to the world, to the lost world, to continue his stand in the gap. When you got saved, people say, I wonder what God wants me to do. Well, there is the essence of what every single born-again Christian is to do. You are to be God's gift to the world, specifically standing in the gap with his passion, his purpose, filling your heart, putting desire in your community 
to see God move. When God looks upon the earth, will he find desire? So the Bible says we're a royal priesthood. It also says we're a chosen race. This point is very important because what it says is that, um, that those that stand in that place of a, of a priest in the earth are not specially selected. They are, they are not uh, receiving a ministry that's optional. You're born into it. When you're born again, you're born into it. You, by inheritance, are a kingdom of priests unto our God, as opposed to the Old Testament where people had to be selected. So let's ask a practical question. How do we stand today in the world around us? How could we stand in the gap? What does that really look like? What does it mean for you and I? And there's three really simple things. Number one, it means sharing the gospel. Sow the seed of the kingdom. When you stand in the gap and you see the world around you, you're not just looking at their need, the depth of their darkness and their sin, you're really looking at the beaming love and mercy and grace of God, how much greater, where iniquity abounds, grace does much more abound, and so it motivates your heart to do what? Share the gospel. That's the bridge. That's what brings people to Jesus. If you want to know what can I do to stem the tide of darkness in the world, there is nothing greater than that you tell everyone God puts on your heart to do so about Jesus and ask them if they're born again, tell them about the love of God, share the gospel. Secondly, intercessory prayer. We are called in the gap to use influence that sinners don't have. Sinners can't pray for themselves. Sinners can't bind the demons that bind them, but you can. You have an influence with God that is effective. It only works when your heart is full of that desire that was in Jesus' heart when he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Jesus was able to cast demons out of oppressed people. He was able to raise the dead, heal the sick, without doing interviews to find out if they were worthy of those miracles. Why did he do them? Because it, he came into the world to save what was lost, not to interview to find out who was worthy to be saved. And so that's why Jesus dealt with the demons that bound sinners, so that they could go free. So that's the second thing we do is intercessory prayer. Use the influence that sinners can't use. And the third thing has to do with your life, how you live your life. No matter what you do as a vocation, uh, no matter what your interests are in life, you're called to be the salt and the light. I don't have time to get into it, but we know what the light is. The light is letting your light shine, letting the qualities, the characteristics of the Lord shine through your life so that people can see the epistles, if you will, that they're not going to read, that can read them through your life, and perhaps it'll spark an interest, and they'll come and want to know about Jesus and want to know about the life in you. But, but the salt is different. That was the light. The salt, the salt slows the rotting influence. The salt is a direct assault upon evil. It holds back the forces of evil. It inserts itself in the land and slows the deterioration of darkness, holding up righteousness. So you start being the salt, you're going to experience some persecution. Christians love being the light. They don't like being the salt so much. But that is also how we stand in the gap. Ask the Lord, what is my assignment? 
as the salt. Let me share with you a couple of examples of men who overlooked, who overlooked their own attitudes about the people that they were called to serve or the people in society around them. They overlooked their attitudes towards them um, who God had sent them to in order to represent God's quest. And the first one that comes to mind is Abraham, when God sent the angel of the Lord and said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham puts himself between the destroying angel and Sodom and Gomorrah. Not because he had a great love for the particular sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham had to look above the awful conditions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and something had to touch his heart. Because if he had, ju if he had just looked at Sodom and Gomorrah, he would have agreed with the angel. He'd have probably said, well, it's about time. Go get them. We'll be praying. Wipe them out. <laughs> kind of like Jonah when he went to Nineveh. He said, I don't want to go preach to these people. But God, God said Jonah had to have a heart for the things that, that God has. So Abraham negotiates with God. He negotiates down the, uh, the judgment. He said, well, if you can find 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? You'll let all the rest of those rascals go. Just let them go be what they are, do what they are. Just if you find 50, will you hold back your judgment for 50 people? God said, I'll do it, but I, there's no 50 in there. How about 40? And he starts negotiating, gets down to 10. God said, all right, I'll hold my judgment back to 10. It wasn't even 10. It was Lot, his nephew, his family. So they got them out of there, and God destroyed the city. But it's just fascinating. Have you ever considered that Abraham had to overlook that wicked culture in order to, to stand in the gap? Are we able to do that? The other person I would think of is, is Moses. Moses is leading the, the, the slaves who've been delivered out of hundreds of years of bondage, delivering them. God's brought them out with signs, wonders, and miracles. And the ungrateful things go back to worshiping idols, they're complaining, they're belly aching, carrying on, and all of that is falling on Moses. He's got to put up with all of that as their leader. And so after a while, you'd be like, oh God, can we maybe find a better quality of people to deal with? So Moses is not necessarily driven by and a great affection that he's got for these people. Something higher, something more important. And God says to Moses, God finally gets fed up. And he says, you know what? <clears throat> I brought them to Mount Sinai. They don't even want to talk to me. Why should I bother saving? They don't even want to hear what I've got to say. I'm, I'll tell you what, I'll destroy them. I'll go find some other people and you can lead them. And Moses says, no, 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 God, don't do that. Don't do that. And he's concerned about God's glory, his honor. What's he concerned about? God's quest. God knows the whole time that he wants Israel. He wants to deliver them. But he wants to see what's in Moses' heart. Why is that? Same with Abraham. God needs to have a man or a woman on the scene, on the battlefield, that wants what he wants, or there's no connection. There's no connection. Finally, Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross pleads the case for the sinners who are killing him while they're killing him. You just can't get any plainer than that. What did he see? He, didn't, he did not see sins that he was like, 
all right, it's not so bad, we'll spare them. He saw his love for them. He saw what he could do. He saw what men and women would look like if they could repent, if they could see God's goodness and receive it. He saw the transformation that could take place. He saw you. Hallelujah. That's what Jesus saw. And that, that is what motivated him to say, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. So remember what I said before. God's desire is the fuel of the priest's mission. You've got to have that desire living in your heart. So practically speaking, be the person who's really attracted to Jesus. That's the best way I know to be the priest that God's looking for. Be someone who's attracted to Jesus. You know, Peter was someone who was attracted to Jesus. Wherever Jesus was, that's where Peter was going to be. He always wanted to be with Jesus. And uh, so Peter climbs out of the boat, walks on the water because he wants to get to Jesus. He follows Jesus to his trial. When, after Jesus raises from the dead, they're fishing on the Lake of Galilee, he sees him on the shore. What's he do? He can't wait to, to boat to shore. He jumps out of the boat, swims to Jesus. He's got to be where Jesus is. Be that kind of person who wants to be where Jesus is. Join him. The reason why we don't have more of a heart for the gap is we're not that close to Jesus. The closer you are to Jesus, the more you're going to have the gap as your mission. You'll feel what God feels. You'll want what God wants. Praise the Lord. People who are known for their quest for Jesus. People who are just known to be Jesus people. She's a Jesus woman. He's a Jesus guy. Um, they always have a magnetic effect on others. Have you ever noticed you're drawn? When, when you get around someone who's drawn to Jesus, it draws you to Jesus. There's this magnetism. And that's the kind of effect that people that live in the gap have on others around them. Let me ask you a question. What are you known for? What would those who know you best say about you? That is a very compelling question, isn't it? Would those who know you best describe you as a quester for God's quest, somebody who is a real pursuer of Jesus? Let me wrap this message up, take the last few minutes, and say to you that Standing in the gap has a starting place. Because when we look at the vast world and everything that's going on in the world today, it can be, uh, it can be overwhelming, quite frankly, and you can feel insignificant. Where can I have an impact? There is a starting point. Standing in the gap starts at home. Standing in the gap starts with family. The family is God's social building block. It forms the foundations in the earth upon which truth and righteousness begin to be laid. When those foundations, the Bible says, are broken up, what can the righteous do? And so God builds foundations in societies through the building block of families. That's why Satan attacks families. If you can destroy the family, there is no way to lay a foundation. There is no government that can replace a family. 
There is no ambitious vision. There is no collective social zeal or program that can build a better foundation than the one God built when he brought Adam and Eve together and he told them to be faithful parents and raise the next generation. God is a God of families. He is generational. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Psalm, what is it, 68 says he puts the solitary in families. The fault line in the gap, the breach in society, starts in homes. That's where the fault line, that's where the separation begins. Again, 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5 says, if the foundations are broken up, there's nothing that the righteous can do that will bear fruit. Pretty ominous. No effort will succeed. I digress for a moment. If America were to continue in its war on families, to dismantle, to destroy families, to destroy marriage, to destroy the purpose for children and youth, and continue in the social experiment that we're pushing ourselves in, our foundations will become irreparable. And nothing we do, nothing the church or anyone else does, will have any fruitful impact. We will be lost as a nation. It's just simple math. You can't mess with God's architecture and then expect the universe to not collapse. Consider this future generation in our hands right now, the children, the youth that we have in our hands right now today. Consider this generation and what we have prepared to hand our children over to. There is no God. There is no gender. There's no marriage. There's no need for family. There are no absolute boundaries. Whatever you think, feel, or believe is your truth. There's no future for the earth, for the planet, because your parents destroyed it. There's no justice any longer in society because white people destroyed justice. And you, as you get ready to go inherit this, this bliss, the one thing you have is the right to attack and persecute anyone who disagrees with what you just said. Now, child, here's your future. Welcome to it. We are throwing our children at the feet of Satan. That's the first place where the gap exists. Now, many of you are probably sitting here thinking, well, this is a great message. I wish I'd had it 40 years ago when I was raising my children, or a couple of years ago when I was raising my grandchildren. For those of you that have children, or you are raising grandchildren, that's your mission field. Right now, is to go stand in the gap for them. Hallelujah. This is why, at the heart of building strong churches, the Bible commands its leaders to rule well their households. You're not qualified to lead God's people if you can't rule your own household. Families are essential and critical. The fault line of the gap runs first through families and then out to society. Listen, God loves your children. He loves your grandchildren. He gave them to you as a blessing. Now, he wants you to make a priority of putting them back into his hands 
rather than turning them over to strange teachers and evil influencers. You know, it was a time not too many years ago when you could send your kids off to school. You could send them off to university, even Northeastern universities. I, I pastored for five, six years at Yale University. I know exactly what higher education is like in contrasting those values. And so it's amazing to me that parents who are Christians and concerned about winning the lost are out there looking to impact the world, but they don't take seriously bringing their own children into the kingdom. Instead, they turn them over to godless teachers who ruin their minds, destroy their souls, and then give them back four or five years later, and they come home hating you and everything that you ever stood for or tried to teach them. God gave them to you so you could put them back in his hands, not turn them over to the world. You know, my children, my, one of them is here today, um, they love and serve the Lord, but they didn't always love and serve the Lord. They took a little detour, just like many of us did, a little slight detour, went nuts, and then came back to Jesus. And so, you know, we raised them in the Lord, sat at the edge of the bed, pray with them at night, talk to them about Jesus. Um, we weren't crazy about forcing church on them or anything. Um, but, you know, when I look back, I'm just going to share a little personal anecdotal story. When I look back on, on my early life as a father, I would give anything today to go back in time, find that time traveling chariot, go back in time, because I would spend more time bringing my children into my personal devotional life with Jesus and introducing them directly to God rather than just pumping them with Bible stories and sending them off to Sunday school. I would bring them into my communion with the Lord. I'd make sure that if I had to mark off time on the calendar, if I had to take extra night or two off to make sure I was there to make a pattern to do those things, and I don't know a Christian parent, too many of them that don't have that regret when they look back in the rearview mirror, why was I so driven to spend all my time doing all these other things? I should have prepared my children better. You can't go back and gather spilled milk um, but you can see the impact. The focus of Satan's strategy to rule our society is aimed directly at our children, aimed at our families. And like I said, you might be thinking, wow, you know, this message is late for me. It's not late for you. It's not late for you. Let me tell you why. There are millions of children who have no spiritual sponsor to bring them to Jesus. They were born in someone else's family, but there's no one spiritually looking out for them. There's no one sharing that they care about them. No one is standing in the gap for them. Find a way to be that person that can stand in the gap for the youth and the children around your life that may not belong to you. Be that quest that God has for their souls. It does no good to pray for the future of our country if we're not willing to labor and work for the future of our country. Let me close with this thought. The late Pope Benedict 
was such a fierce defender of biblical family traditions that he was despised by the Marxist left in the church. And he was criticized openly and given satirically the name God's Rottweiler as a slur. Well, my prayer today is that you would take up that same gap assignment that Jesus did, the same gap assignment that Benedict did, and that you would earn the criticism, God's Rottweiler. There's a ministry for you, if you want it. Hallelujah. Close your Bible and stand with me.